good afternoon on this holy day. Very few people know it's a holy day, but it is, so we're here. <clears throat> but before we get into anything else, we do have special music today. Gloria will sing Emmanuel. Over the last 26 years, anyway, we've been going a lot through the prophecies of the end time and how things would be, what events would happen, what God has in mind, what He, how He will intervene, what He will do with His end time church. We spent a great deal of time on those things because we didn't understand them decades ago until God began to open some of these scriptures up to our understanding. So, there is a lot that we have learned, there's a lot that we anticipate, that we look forward to. We don't know exactly how God is going to work everything out. We're waiting to see. He knows everything. You know, I know a little. You know a little. I look at the news, I look at alternative news, I try to figure out what's happening in China, in Russia, in Washington, D.C., and various other places on the earth with the Arabs, with Iran, and I get a little here and I get a little there, and I try to put the story together to see how it fits the scriptures, because this is all that matters is what God says and what he's going to do. And as Paul said about eternal life, we look through a glass darkly, 
And certainly we do at these prophecies to some degree as well. No matter how much we understand, we still don't know just exactly how everything is going to work out. And I marvel that the sovereign of the universe, our Father in heaven and his son, our brother, with him, know every detail of everything that is going on. A sparrow does not fall to the ground that they don't know of it. The hair on your head is counted. You cannot do that at all. I mean, if you pulled them out one at a time, you might come close, but you'd probably still miscount and have to start over. But God can do those things. Now, he knows every meeting that is held on this earth in every country by every boardroom of a company, by every governmental person there is. He knows exactly what every politician is doing, how much they're receiving on the side, uh, what their mindset is, and what they're trying to accomplish. We try to figure all that out based on a limited amount of knowledge, but God knows it all. Now, what I do learn about these things, and have learned, and so have you, we have to examine and analyze in the light of the Scripture, which we don't fully comprehend, because he doesn't lay out every detail of what everyone, every politician, every dictator is going to think or say, does he? I mean, this book would be too big for this room to be included, all that stuff. So he gives us, really it's fairly thick, but it's still just a basic outline of what he has in mind. I am so thankful that he knows everything. He knows exactly what is going on, how it is going on, what everyone's plan is, and he knows when they plan to do what. And he's sitting there knowing everything. So what do you and I do? We defer to him, don't we? We say, it's up to you. When this happens, when that happens, whether it happens the way I think it might or whether you have something different in mind, it is such a exhilarating feeling sometimes when I think about it to realize that he is in total control of everything, even Satan, and can tell him when and where to go, and will. So he is all-powerful throughout the universe, and we're just little human beings down here. We only live 70, 80 years, maybe. Maybe a little longer. But we can't accomplish much. We can't really do anything. Of ourselves, we can do nothing. And Christ, who had been at the throne of his Father when he was a human, said, I can do nothing. It is my Father that does it all, because the Father still had the power and the knowledge and the understanding that even Christ himself did not have in the same way that he had had before. Now, he still was very perceptive of minds and attitudes and so on and could predict certain things and did, but he did not have any more what he had had with the Father. He had to become like us in order to be tempted at every point like as we are, in order to resist sin throughout his life. He had to have the temptation. He had to have the desire, the, com the compelling to sin, if you will. It had to be there, or he could not be our elder brother and lead us to salvation if he hadn't gone through everything that we have gone through. And I suspect, because human beings have all different kinds of passions, of ideas, of thoughts, of temptations. 
And everybody has a little bit different set than everybody else, but they all basically come under the umbrella of Ten Commandments. Uh, and most everything human beings want to do, they're told not to do there. Uh, so that is where most people have most of their difficulties is with those ten. So he had to deal with the temptation to break every one of those and accomplished it. So he is in charge now, and he knows everything that's going on. He will do things when and as he pleases, and we are here to partake of it as he allows and directs, thankfully. Because if it were up to us, we'd make a mess. We couldn't handle it right. Mankind has always made a mess, hasn't he? From Adam and Eve on down. So, we have God. How can we not go to him? How can we not talk to him? How can we not ask for his guidance and direction and wisdom and strength to lead this life as he would have us lead it? Because he is so much higher and so much more powerful, and so much more understanding than we are. Now, I'm going to go back to the book of Exodus today, because God made a wonderful deliverance here, and throughout the Bible, from the time that this occurred in the book of Exodus, until today, all through the Scriptures, and frequently in the Psalms, God inspired the writers of the Bible to mention the deliverance from Egypt or Mitzrayim, from their 430 years of captivity that they went through. It's all through the Scriptures. It's all through the New Testament, a reminder of it, quite a few places. Well, this was a life-changing, nation-changing experience. Before it was over, Mithraim was destroyed. Israel was delivered and later became a great nation. So there was a sea change here, something very, very important that occurred. And part of the reason I bring up that we have been studying all these prophecies of the end time is that throughout them, He's promising another deliverance here at the end, similar to what he did back then. And that should have our attention, because it should give us an awful lot of understanding, of clues, of what God is about to do. He works in patterns. He repeats things. In Noah's day, there was a great deliverance. Uh, of only eight survivors, but from there, he started over, pretty much. So he's done that through history more than once. And the pattern is that when man gets so bad, God intervenes. When Israel got so bad, he would intervene, send them into captivity, do various things to them. And here in the, well, even in the early New Testament church, it started out with great power, with even four and five thousand a day being converted and baptized. That's the kind of power God showed from Pentecost in Acts 2 forward for a short while. And then you began to see rebellions. You began to see people doing all kinds of things that particularly Paul addressed. Peter did some, James and others of the problems they had in the early New Testament church, and of rebels and various ones that would come in who were fighting Paul and fighting the ministry. They had a lot of problems. And then it wound up with the apostles being martyred except for John, and the church basically just disappeared. And the Catholic church, through Simon Magus, rose out of the ashes and became a big deal under Satan, apart from God. But the church came apart, basically disappeared. 
A few people throughout history have been able to trace here and there we're keeping the Sabbath of the holy days. Not very much, but a little here and there it seems to be. Because Christ said it wouldn't die out, and apparently it didn't, but it came that close to it. And here in the end, then, we saw a church grow. We saw it get bigger and bigger. We saw it become more lackadaisical and self-righteous, thinking we were A-OK and everything was fine and we're going to go to a place of safety and we'd all be taken care of. No trouble. Everything will be fine for us. We won't go tribulation or any of that. And we got so self-righteous and self-assured and lackadaisical that God just mewed us out. And the end-time church, for all intent and purpose, has almost disappeared. Israel, back in Exodus, had almost disappeared. They had merged into the Mitzrim culture over 430 years. So much so that when it was told them that when God was going to deliver them, they said, well, which God? Because they had begun to worship the same gods the Egyptians did. So they had no clue anymore. They were still somewhat separate. They were slaves. <laughs> they were in a bad system. Does that sound anything like today? You know, a bad system. I think we understand now that God, from the time of Roanoke Ptolemy until 2017, we had 430 years in the captivity of a Babylonian government, and we didn't fight it off. We didn't turn to God. He gave us a brand new start in a brand new land that had been basically desolate except for the Indian tribes that had been left behind when Israel was taken captive out of here overseas. So it had, had plenty of land rest. It was productive, had everything we could possibly need, and God turned us loose over here. And a few people kept the holy days of the Sabbath for a few years. And they were shouted down by the Christmas and Easter crowd and so on. And we failed to turn to God, even from our very beginning. Our leaders were deists rather than God-fearers. And they admitted it. They set up Washington, D.C. in a Masonic pattern, not a godly one. They borrowed from Rome and Greek and so on. And we have been under a Masonic, anti-God government all the way through. And I don't... Hard to bust our little bubbles that we learned in school, but Washington, Jefferson, Franklin, all those men were deists. Which, in their own words, means they believed there was a God who created things, and then he went off and took a nap, and he hasn't intervened ever since. That's basically what deism is. He's letting us follow our own ways. Well, why did God send them down there and make them captives in the first place in Exodus? We've come to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Joseph was sent ahead of time into slavery in Egypt and rose to prominence there. And saved Egypt. I, I say Egypt because that's what we said. It was really Mithraim. From the drought that was to come. And then God caused Israel to go there. Had Jacob sinned that greatly? Were they that bad that they needed to go into slavery at that time? Well, his sons weren't real whippy. They were going to kill Joseph and then they decided, uh, well, let's just sell him instead, get rid of him. So they were human, okay, but they were not deeply in sin and corrupt like we are today, let's say. What was going on? Well, it was nation building. He had promised certain things to Abraham and others. And he was going to fulfill them, but 
there had to be some things that occurred in order for them to truly accept God. And it was not going to come easy. So he sent them into Mitzrayim. They weren't slaves right away. They were given the finest of land because Joseph was so close to Pharaoh. And over a period of time, because they did not truly follow God and began to slip and slide away, that they began to be put into slavery. It said Pharaoh looked at them and said, man, they have lots of kids. They're going to outnumber us and they'll take over. So let's make them work. Let's make slaves out of them. And he did. Well, God had a plan in mind. And he caused Moses to be born of a Hebrew woman. Now, I'm talking a lot more than I'm reading so far today because you may have noticed last night I have uh, an eye problem. I, sometimes, even last night, I couldn't read a word and I'd kind of stumble. But uh, they're bothering me. So I'll do some reading. And I often do because I won't, don't want to get far from this word itself. I'd like to read it to you. But we do what we can do. Anyway, he was born and protected. And God worked things out so that he grew up actually in the court of Pharaoh, to his daughter as his mother, and learned all the things about that government and became a prominent part of it. And then he killed a, a Mitzrayimite and had to flee for his life. And God took him out in the desert and let him grow and mature there for 40 years. What he learned in Pharaoh's court would do him no good ultimately with God. What you learn in this society out there will do you no good with God. What part of society in New York or L.A. or Miami or wherever can you go and learn anything from it that will stand you in good stead with God? Nowhere. Nothing. There's nothing good out there, and it's degenerating rapidly, even from where it has been. So he sent him out in the desert to learn some things. And he stayed there 40 years. Then he came back. And God went through things and he told him, I'm going to deliver Israel through you. And Moses kind of doubted that. And he says, well, you know, I don't talk very good. I, I, I can't speak publicly. Whether it was a stutter or what that he used as an excuse. Uh, God said, Okay. You don't want to talk, I'll let Aaron talk for you. That probably didn't go over too well with Moses. He was afraid of the job that was ahead. He didn't think he could do it. He didn't at that point fully trust God to take care of it. Now, he became a very faithful servant. But Moses had his difficulties. Thankfully, in some ways, because you and I can look at some of those things and learn some lessons there, and hopefully not repeat. When God tells us to do something, we just need to say, yes, Lord. Yes, sir. Yes, master. You ask me to do it, you must figure I can do it. And if I can't, you'll help me. And that's all we need, is God to help us. Now, last night, you heard some of that story. We read through John 13 to 17 through 17, and he told him, I'll help you. I'll send the comforter to help you. You have a job to do, but you're not going to have to do it alone. Now, here we are at the end time. There is a big job to be done, and God is going to help, and we're not going to do it alone because... Of and by ourselves, we can do nothing. And he's been teaching us that. We can do nothing. 
only when he adds the power, the inspiration, the strength, the opportunity, can we do anything, and then that's through him. And he told that to Zerubbabel very directly there in Zechariah 4, where he says, not by might, not by strength, but by my power, says the eternal. So everything that the end-time church does is going to be done through the power of God, not the power of men. Now we're going to get into, I think, during these days, some things about the covenants, the old and the new, and what they amount to and what they really are. But he was giving them a lot of the terms of the New Deal there in John 13 through 17. But depending on God was the key. And we are facing the same situation uh, with building a temple, with building Jerusalem, with preaching to the world for three and a half years, a bunch of mostly old people that are getting decrepit and sick and old and senile and can't remember what they went in the other room for. So God is going to have to do some incredible things in order to get his work done. But he's always used people. He, uh, he likes people. <laughs> I'm not sure why sometimes, but he does. He made us. He loves us. Just like our kids. Sometimes you wonder why you love them. But you do. Can't help it. You just do. I heard it said one time. I've kind of repeated it as a joke. I wouldn't take a million dollars for any one of my kids. And I wouldn't. But I wouldn't give you a dollar for another one just like them. Well, that's a joke, but you know what I mean if you raise kids. Sometimes you wonder, what in the world is this all about? Even when they're 40, 50, 60 years old, you, maybe you wonder even more by then. So God took Moses out there and worked him over. Let him get married. Let him learn some lessons there, I'm sure. And then he came back after having murdered that Ephraimite, I mean that Mithraimite, and uh, having to flee for his life. So for 40 years he wandered out there fearful that Pharaoh would learn where he was and come after him. And then he got the word that, well, Pharaoh has now died. And he said, oh, thank God for that. And then God began to work with him and to bring him back. Well, he resisted because he couldn't speak well. And he also used the excuses in here. I, I'm, this is Exodus 3, 4, 5, 6 I'm quoting from. He said, they won't listen to me. You're sending me in there to deliver Israel. They've been there 430 years. They don't know you. They don't know me. And not only that, they weren't very happy when I killed that man, and they saw it, and I had to flee from my very life. And you're going to send me back there to deliver them. This was, this was a pretty chunk, big chunk for him to swallow, I think. And he resisted, and he made excuses. But the beauty of God is that patience is one of the fruits of his spirit. Long-suffering is a fruit of his spirit. So he was very patient with Moses. He was very long-suffering. He let him go through all these thoughts and imaginations because God had decided to use him, and he decided to use him in spite of himself. I know you're objecting, Moses. I know you got this problem. You got that problem, but I'm going to work with you here. Let's get this thing done. So Moses finally accepted it and decided he would do it. Kind of, counts, kind of sounds a little like Jonah here for a while, doesn't it? I don't want to take that message. I'm not going to do that. Well, how would you like to wallow around in a fish for three days? <laughs> he worked pretty patiently with it, didn't he? 
He got him to where he wanted him. And then Jonah decided, all things considered, I think I'll go to Nineveh. <laughs> Must have been a tough decision at that point. I think he pretty well made up his mind when he got spit out on the beach. Uh, I have a schedule. Let's see. I've been in there three days thinking about what my schedule will be if I ever get out of here. And at the top of the list, I'm going to Nineveh. I don't think there's probably anything else under that on the list. That was top of the list, and it was the list. Because God has his ways, does he not? He can make us do as he chooses, often against our will. He can put us things, through things, that will change our minds. And often does. He will chasten us sometimes, Hebrews 12 until we change our heart, mind, and attitude and are ready to do what he wants done. And he really goes through that with us pretty much every day, doesn't he? Here's his word. Here's what we're supposed to do. We know what we're supposed to do, so we go do something else. He works with that. His mercy endureth forever. There comes a point where we're obstinate and stubborn enough and reject him so much that he finally says, okay, you can have your way. I have a barbecue uh, set up for you. Take you to a barbecue. And you're the wiener. <laughs> you know, there comes a point where he says, that's the way you want to go? Go for it. But he works with us so tenderly, so gently, so lovingly, for so long. I've been trying to learn God's way since I was about eight years old, the early 50s. And I'm, I hope, getting close to first base at least. But it's difficult. always is difficult. So Moses went through it here. And then God even told uh, what would happen to Moses. He says, you think you've been stubborn. What about Pharaoh? He's going to be far more stubborn than you were. And I am going to do something, and he'll harden his heart. I'll do something else, and he'll say, do what you want, and I'll harden his heart. And he's going to put you through an awful lot before he finally says, you can go. You can always flip forward to the end time as I say these things, can you not? Where the beast and the false prophet are going to say, you can't do this. You must do that. You must have this chip in your hand or you can't buy and sell. They will be very hard-hearted. They will not allow you any mercy, any opportunity, if you claim to be a Christian, they will kill you as soon as they can. And we have scriptures in Daniel and in Revelation which say they will martyr a great amount of the church. In fact, approximately 90% of it, because only 10% will respond to God. So Pharaoh did not respond to God. Israel did not respond to God. Now, he had been prepping them for all this 430 years to coming and being their God, ruling over them, delivering them, blessing them in such a way that you would think that a human being would say, Oh, man, you brought me out of all this trouble and making bricks every day, and... Now we're going to a place that you promised us to go. We are so excited. We are going to go and we'll follow and do everything you say. You're the boss. Whatever you say, we'll do it. Didn't they? They got on the other side of the Red Sea and they sang songs and gave glory to God. We'll leave the story there for the moment. Back here, 
He says in chapter 7, verse 5, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Eternal, when I stretch forth my hand upon Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. What does he tell us in the book of Ezekiel? I think it, I haven't counted it up, but it's probably dozens of times where he refers to his people and to the world. And he says, those exact words, they shall know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel is an end-time book, if there is one. So it is an end-time prophecy. So what we're reading here, what we're looking at, is a microcosm of the end of the age, of what God is going to do. So let's read about ourselves here. Moses was still timid, so God said, you see that rod in your hand? Oh yeah, I like this one, I've had it for quite some time. He said, throw it on the ground. Phew! It was a snake, a poison one. Gopher snake wouldn't have scared Moses, that one did. And God said, pick it, pick it up, what do you mean pick it up? I might get bit. Well, he got it by the tail started pulling, and boom, it was a rock off. <sighs> Just a stick. All right. So God had to convince Moses of these things, and they said, you can do the same thing with Pharaoh. And Moses thought, hey, that's neat. I can throw it down in front of Pharaoh and scare him for a change. So he's starting to get the picture here a little bit. Pharaoh called the wise men and sorcerers and the magicians of Egypt, which God tells us not to do. And they cast down every man his rod, verse 12, and they became serpents, but Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. And God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to them. So this is the way this gets going. So God says, okay, now I'm going to put people through some tough times. And you'll notice down in chapter 7, verse 17, that the waters will be turned to blood. The fish will die. The river will stink. The Egyptians shall loathe the drink of the water of the river. They worship the Nile. They worship the crocodiles. They worship bugs in the water. Their gods were many and weird. So he turned their God into blood. And you know what? Israel went through that. Israel also couldn't find a drink of water. Now I have long thought that these stories back here were for us. And wondered how much of the trouble and trial and tribulation <laughs> that the world is starting to go through, that our nation is now starting to go through, we would have to go through as well before God made a separation and a difference. Here they went through blood. That's unimaginable. You go down to the river, and there's blood flowing by. You look in the well, and there's blood in the well. You can't find a drink of water. This didn't happen too long, or they'd have died. <coughs> Maybe some of them drank blood. I don't know. And then that went away, seven days, verse 25. And then he sent frogs. Frogs are kind of cute. If I see a toad in the backyard, it's kind of cute. I like to see it hop around and eat flies. But not if they're in my kitchen sink, and in my bed, and in my shower, and in my recliner, and up my leg, and down my shirt. They don't be cute anymore. I got over that. <clears throat> A plague of frogs. Through the windows, through the door. Hippity hop everywhere you looked. And if I thought were bullfrogs, that was probably deafening. And this was on Israel as well. Now, God had said he's going to plague the Egyptians, and here he's plaguing Israel with them. 
Had Israel, even before this, during this, and almost ever since after this, ever been stubborn, ever wanted their own way instead of God's way? Well, yeah, we all know that. And he says even modern-day Ephraim, our country, is like a heifer that plants all four legs and will not be led anywhere but resists completely. They plant all four legs. You're not going to pull them. You'll choke them to death before they'll come forward. That's an Israelite. Stubborn and stiff-necked and rebellious. God said, even the Gentiles aren't as bad as you. Nineveh repented. The Gentiles are more willing to listen to God sometimes than born Israelites. And yet God had chosen to work through Israel. And Israel said, we accept that you're going to work through us, but we won't let you. <laughs> I'm kind of summarizing a lot of history here. So we had the frogs. Do you think that was bad? Wait till the lice got on you. Have you ever had lice on you? Or maybe a lot of you from down south. How about chiggers? That's kind of a form of little bug like a lice. And they make terribly painful, itchy sores around the tops of your socks and the tops of your underwear. And anywhere it binds, they go there and dig in. And a good case of chiggers can itch like you can't believe for two or three or four weeks. They just don't go away. When I lived in East Texas, I didn't dare go lay on the grass. I knew I'd get a crop of chiggers. Lice, I've seen them on dogs, cats, crawling everywhere, going everywhere. These were in the bed, too. Great big piles of them. All over the floor, all over everything. You think a crop of roaches is bad down south. These lice were far worse than that could have ever been. At least the roaches would run when you turn the light on, not the lice. Israel went through this too. Miserable. Verse 18 of chapter 8. The magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lice. But they could not. So there were lice upon man and upon beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened. No, no matter the lies, when his magicians told him, this is the finger of God, he rebelled instantly against that. Hardened his heart. Didn't care about the lies. He didn't want anything to do with God. Then in verse 21, he sent swarms of flies. How long does it take you to ir get irritated when one fly is a buzzing around your face and you're trying to take a nap? can be irritating. I swatted at one fly half asleep probably two, three dozen times. Not wake up enough to go get a swatter and kill it, but just, or a mosquito. You know, same way. It's a mosquito buzzing around your head at night. And you can't hit it. You swing at it moves, and it comes back, and it comes back. And if you are in them, I'll cite one example. One time I was up in Alaska, out way down the Yukon River, 250 miles, and we were fishing on a nice river there. And a few mosquitoes out around the boat, but it wasn't too bad. And I see this black bear coming down the beach, and he sees us and runs in the woods. Well, I happened to have a rifle there, and I told the guy in the back of the canoe to pull over on that beach. I'm going to go get that bear. So I grabbed my gun. I run into the woods to get the bear. bear didn't really scare me that much. I had a gun, and I was young and stupid, so it's not a big deal. I ran in there after him. 
And a cloud of mosquitoes in those woods was so thick, I could not hardly see my arm. They were that thick. You couldn't breathe without mosquitoes coming in your throat. And I came running out of those woods faster than I ran in. Because those mosquitoes actually can kill you. And these flies, I have not been in a swarm of flies that bad, but it reminded me of the mosquitoes. They must have been like that. A hundred flies on my back porch is way too many in the summer. This was by, I guess, the millions. There were millions of people. There were certainly millions of flies. Verse 22, And I will sever in that day the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there. To the end you may know that I am the Eternal in the midst of the earth. So God was having to teach them which God he was. So he let them go through the first three with the Egyptians. And they thought, there's no difference. And then the flies didn't come. And they must have thought, wow. This might be a God that we're thinking about, you know. He didn't let the flies come. Then Pharaoh called Moses and says, Go sacrifice to your God. Verse 26, And Moses said, It is not meet so to do, for we shall sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. Lo, shall we sacrifice the abominations of the Egyptians before their eyes, and will they not stone us? You see, if you go to India as a visitor and a cow gets in your way and you run over it and kill it, you'll probably be hung on the spot because they worship cows. The Egyptians worship flies. I mean, we got a little more sense than that. If you're going to have false gods and idols, you pick a better one than flies, I'm pretty sure. I mean, you are a lot better than a fly, are you not? And you worship yourself, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Here we are, a pile of human flesh, destined to die and rot, and we put ourselves ahead of God. That is idolatry, that is self-worship. And that's the first and greatest commandment, is worshiping God instead of self, or any other god of flies or alligators, or whoever you choose, but you know, we're a little brighter than the Egyptians, so we, we pick them a little better. Verse 27. Oh, let's see. Oh, I, I skipped too far ahead. Then he sent a murrhine after the flies, and this affected the animals. A very grievous thing. They'll sever between the cattle of Israel and the cattle of Egypt. And nothing will die of all the children of Egypt. I mean of Israel, but all the cattle of Egypt did die. So this was a plague. I don't know exactly what a murrhine is, but it was something that killed the cattle, killed the animals of the Mitzrayimites. And then after that, chapter verse 6, or verse 9 of chapter 9, the sixth thing he sent was boils. Have you ever had a boil? I suppose most of us have had one at one time or another. I think I had one once or twice. Or at least a kind of thing that it just swells up and, oh, it hurts. Just one boil hurts so badly. Job had them all over his body. He couldn't lay down. He couldn't sit. He couldn't stand without severe pain. And God sent this upon all these millions of Mitzrayimites. Now he tells us in the end time, Ezekiel 5, that the people of our nation are going to die, one-third of us, with famine and pestilence. We've had a little pestilence turned loose on us, and we're having famine beginning to be turned loose upon us right now as we sit here today. 
And then we're going to have the sword turned loose on us and be taken into captivity. Our debt will be paid because the only thing we have to pay our trillions of debts to the rest of the world is our land and our bodies. They'll take our land and enslave our bodies. And that's how America's debt to the world will be paid. And God lays it out very clearly. Anyway, they had boils all over them. And then the seventh one was hail, down in verse 18. Hail had not been there since the foundation of their empire. And it was so bad that it would kill cattle that were in the field. It would strip the trees completely. These were probably as big as baseballs. Some of them may have been as big as basketballs. I don't know. It wasn't there, thankfully. But they did a lot of killing. So then in verse 27, Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous, and I and my people are wicked. Finally, Pharaoh is beginning to say, something's wrong here. Your God's pretty powerful. Our crocodiles never did this. And our flies have become, instead of a god, a plague. And the weather is turned against us. We got this hail. And we're, we're being destroyed. Now, he doesn't say here that I'm going to repent and I'm going to worship God. Did he, read, did he say that? No, he didn't say that. He said, your God is righteous and I'm wicked. And your God's going to stay righteous, and I'm going to remain wicked, but I'm going to let you go worship your God. In essence. And it just keeps getting worse. Down to chapter 10, verse 7. Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Know you not that Egypt is destroyed? Don't you realize this empire we have is destroyed? Our cattle are dead. Our crops are dead. Our trees are dead. Our people are suffering. Their God has destroyed this nation. When will Americans wake up? down the line here and say, wow, God is God. We have been destroyed. When will they admit they're even Israelites? You know, we have a whole country here of Israelites that don't have a clue who they are. Very few do. Very few. Now, God doesn't care in that sense. Because he invited all peoples, all races, to be spiritual Israelites. So it doesn't matter what our blood is, black, brown, yellow, white, green, if you can come up with it. We can all become the children of God. All be inheritors of eternal life and become part of the bride of Christ. So physical blood doesn't matter one whit. It's the Spirit of God flowing through us that matters everything. So, we finally come down where God says, they're not going to let you leave. They're going to kick you out. They will thrust you out. It's going to be so bad that they can't stand to have you here. Now, the world is going to get that way toward the remnant church and the two witnesses. They will not only try to thrust them out, they will try to thrust them through. They will try to shoot them and kill them. They will do everything they can to destroy anybody who worships God, particularly those who are preaching against Satan and the beast and false prophet and proclaiming that God is the eternal one. And they'll do everything they can to kill them, and can't, until those last three days, three and a half days. Then they will. 
And oh, will they party when that happens. So, Pharaoh thought, all right, everything's going to be okay. But God says, no, they will kick you out of here just as fast as they can. And God told Moses what was going to happen next, chapter 11, verse 4. Moses said, Thus says the Eternal, About midnight will I go out in the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Mithraim shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of beasts. Everything firstborn, man and beast, would die. About midnight. And it wasn't a blob that came through, and it wasn't an angel that came through. Christ said, I will do it. And they will die. But a dog won't even bark against an Israelite, verse 7. Let's read a little more. And all these here servants, verse 8, shall come down to me. And bow down themselves to me, saying, Get you out, and all the people that follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in a great anger. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh shall not hearken to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh would not even listen after all these plagues. And Moses comes to him and says, All your firstborn are going to die. And Pharaoh would not listen. You would think after all these plagues had come and gone and come and gone, that when Moses came to him again and said, all right, now we're, God's going to kill all your firstborn, he'd have said, well, he's done everything else he said he'd do. He might do that. Why don't you just toodaloo? Who away? No. Heart was hardened again. And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the children of Israel go out of the land. I remember someone giving a sermonette on this one time, and I don't remember exactly how they proved it, but where it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, he came up with the thought that Pharaoh hardened his own heart because of the way the Hebrew was written and so on. So I, I can't really speak to that because I was in college and I heard that and it's been a while. And I wasn't sure I bought it then, but uh, there's that possibility because human beings are pretty tough sometimes. What time is he getting into? we got a little more time. So the Eternal spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, this month shall be to you the beginning of months. Now, here's a change in approach. Up to this point, he's been telling them, I will deliver you. And he's been preparing the Egyptians to, in, in fact, get rid of them. So this is all prep work that we've been discussing so far today. Now we're getting down to God's instruction to Israel about how they are to live in the future, how things are to be and apprises them of the deliverance that he is about to give them. He's done that with you and me through Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, the minor prophets, some of the New Testament prophets, Daniel, and Exodus, if you will. He's told us ahead of time what he's going to do. Now circumstances are a little different. Our country is a little different than Israel was. So we're dealing with a little bit of a different situation, but it's still a matter of righteousness against unrighteousness. It's always been that way since Adam and Eve. And God has always dealt with the circumstances, whatever they be, that created the difference between righteousness and unrighteousness. And today, we have our own set. But he's going to sort it out. And indeed, he tells us pretty much what they are in those prophecies that we just mentioned. Anyway, this month will be a beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. 
So he's giving them a calendar that they had not had previously. <laughs> Speak to unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. If the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take according to the number of the souls, every man according to his eating, shall make your count for the lamb. It shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. So they separated it on the tenth to uh, examine it to be sure it was a good lamb, didn't have any faults or problems, and was worthy of being that kind of sacrifice. Now, we take that lesson, and I think the formal time when he, Paul says, examine yourselves, we read last night, and then take the Passover, uh, we have to look at it the same way. We have a formal time from the 10th to the 14th to really examine ourselves in depth, to think things over, to meditate on it, to try to figure out what our sins, our lacks, our needs are, and then come and humbly take the Passover, representing Christ and his sacrifice for us, realizing how badly we need it. That's why we need to examine ourselves ahead of time so that there's no mistake in our minds when we sat down last night to partake of the Passover. No question in our mind that we needed that. That we fall so far short of being like the Father and the Son that we are in desperate need of forgiveness and the washing away of our sins. And if you haven't examined yourself ahead of time, you might take it a little lightly, a little flippantly, a little bit as just a ceremony we go through to remind us. But it needs to go deeper than that. It needs to go down into the heart and soul of who we really are and what we are as a human being. And God gives us lots of clues in the scriptures of what a human being is. He's evil, desperately wicked, you know, that kind of scriptures. And that's what we are. So he tells us then, from that Passover last night for the next seven days, to begin putting that sin out, to get rid of it, to work on ourselves, specifically for seven days. We should work on ourselves every day of the year, yes. But during this particular time, it's a time to really dwell on it and work hard at it in a way that maybe we don't quite as much in daily life. But to be cognizant of it, in other words, to realize how much work there is that needs to be done. So they were to do this. Now on the 14th day, the end of the day, beginning of, uh, at the end of the 13th, beginning of the 14th, at the evening time, as the sun went down, they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door uh, of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, not boiled, but roast with fire, his head with his legs, and with the pertinence of the insides thereof. And you shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remains of it <laughs> until the morning, you shall burn with fire. Now when the sacrifices were later instituted, some of these phrases were used then as well. It was to be a burnt offering, uh, and so on. They had to kill it. Well, this is the beginning of the symbolism of Christ to them, uh, the Lamb of God, 
that we today worship. And this was just a physical thing that they did to recognize God. And he is going to show them, has been showing them, and what we've seen so far, who God is. And he made a separation so that they might determine, well, we're not like the Egyptians. We're different. God is treating us differently. And you and I begin to see, once we begin to be converted, that God treats us differently than he treats the rest of the world. Now, we're going through some of what the world is going through right now. Price of gas going up, price of groceries going up, all kinds of things are coming down, COVID's come through. We suffered from some from a, some of us. One of us died from it. We're suffering some of the same things the world around us is. When will God make a difference? <laughs> I don't know, but it doesn't shake me that we've gone through what we have so far. Because I see right here that he let them go through a certain amount and then he made a difference. And he plans to with us. <laughs> this story is only really in the beginning stages. So they were to eat that Passover that night. And we're going to stop there today because my throat is about gone and my eyes are gone and the time is about gone. I intended to get deeper and start with 12, but I thought, <laughs> no, we need the lead up to this. We need to examine what God did at the beginning of this story and come forward with it. So we'll continue with that tomorrow, God willing.